Well, we will be back again this morning in John chapter 14. You can begin turning there. On the way in this morning on the radio, uh, there was a commercial playing that said, here's all the things going on in the world that you might be distressed about. But life is about more than being in control of everything because you can't do that. I was curious. Okay, well then what is life about? And the commercial went on to say, well, life is about controlling what you can. And then went on to advertise some financial services. And then what was hilarious was at the end of the commercial, because they're required to by law, it said, oh, by the way, your finances might totally crash and you lose everything because you can't actually predict what's going to happen. (laughs) (laughs) I thought, man, isn't that how it is? In fact, this week, if you look, I looked up a bunch of lists of things that cause anxiety and distress. And I noticed you can group everything in those lists into four categories. We feel troubled, we feel distressed because of either sickness, circumstances, suffering, or socialization or relationships. Everything that contributed to the anxiety that that was on all these top lists I could find fit into one of those four categories. In sickness, we wonder if we'll ever be made whole. In our circumstances, we wonder if we'll ever have stability and peace and a true home. In our suffering, we wonder if our pain will ever end. In our social relationships, we wonder if we will ever come to experience perfect love. But there's another category as well that I didn't see on any of those lists. And it's actually the only category that I think should produce anxiety in us. And that is sin. Sin. Because if we manage to find perfect health, ideal circumstances, happiness, and bliss, and fulfilling relationships in this life, and then had to face the holy judge of all the earth as sinful creatures, that should produce a little bit of uneasiness in all of us. But how cool is it that the good news of the gospel is that in Jesus there is a solution to all our needs. The ones we feel keenly, the ones we tend to put down on top ten lists, and even the often more important but overlooked needs that we sometimes don't think about, but which are in fact more pressing. And in our passage today, we're going to encounter, I think, some amazing truths that Jesus is giving to his disciples to counteract their growing anxiety and distress. And it's a simple and unchanging gift of truth that is as needful for us today as it was for them 2,000 years ago. And so if you have your Bibles, turn to John 14. And as you are able, would you stand for the honor, to honor the reading of God's Word? This morning we'll be reading John 14, verses 1 through 4. John 14, verses 1 through 4 says this, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also, and you know the way where I am going. Would you pray with me? Father, we understand that though... The truth you have revealed to us is in plain language. You have not secretly encoded your message within it. Yet our hearts are often slow to both grasp 
and to accept and to live out the truth that is here before us. We thank you for giving us the Holy Spirit who works within us to open our minds to understand what is here and to give to us the strength we lack to obey, to cause our will and our hearts to unite. And we pray that you would do that this morning in all of us as we listen to what you have to say to us in your word. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, today, as, as you know, is Palm Sunday. Uh, it marks the beginning of the highlight of the Christian year, which is Easter, that mountain peak of celebration in the life of the church every year. And today, I think we see a passage that ought to give to us a sense of great anticipation and excitement, something that we can carry with us into Easter week. I want to encourage you all. I know many of you have traditions and things that you do this week, but make this a fun week. Uh, Pour into it. Make it smell good, taste good, look good, have fun. Uh, This is our time as the church to party uh, and to enjoy that our Savior is a conquering hero. And as we're seeing this morning, he is coming again. And this morning, I want to point us, as our text does, to Jesus himself. The central lesson, I think, for us is basically this. When we trust who Jesus is, we are comforted no matter what he is doing. When we trust who Jesus is, we're comforted no matter what he is doing. And he's going to give that to us in this passage, beginning, if you're taking notes this morning, uh, your first point there on your outline is the alternative to trouble is trust. The alternative to trouble is trust. Look with me there at verse 1, which begins with the words of Jesus simply saying this, Do not let your heart be troubled. And we have to sort of drop ourselves back into the room to appreciate what he's saying here. If you'll recall, yet again, we are, as we will be for the next uh, 25% of the book of John, we're in the upper room. It's the last night of Christ's life. And so far, it's not gone the way the disciples had expected. They were like, it's the Passover feast. It's Jesus. Everybody's talking about Jesus. There's excitement crackling in the air. There's some danger too, but this is kind of cool. And yet, since the meal has begun... It's been one set of unexpected events after another. They begin with Jesus stooping down to wash their feet. That's unsettling enough as it is, especially when he says, and I want you to do that. And so they might be thinking like, well, does that mean it's Peter's turn next? Or what is it supposed to look like? So that kind of gets them a little uneasy. What is Jesus doing when he's just inverting the relationship of of teacher and disciple and How is that supposed to look in our lives? And then he goes on further and all of a sudden becomes troubled and says, one of you is going to betray me. And they're going, how is that possible? Who could it be? And we know Judas has left the room and it doesn't appear the disciples have quite put it together that Judas was in fact the one who would betray Jesus. But then the topic immediately turns to who else will follow Jesus? Peter, of course, rises to the occasion. I'm going to stick with you, Jesus. You might say you're leaving, but... Not without me. And then the rest of the disciples jump in. Yeah, me too. You know, Peter's not better than us. We're just as loyal as he is. And they're all debating this. And then Jesus turns to Peter and says, You're going to deny me three times tonight. And you have to imagine that after all this just kind of uproar and discussion, and it just fell silent. The consternation that must have just been playing out on all their faces. What? This is not how Passover feast is supposed to go. We have prayers. We have songs. 
We have there's things we're supposed to be doing. What are you doing, Jesus? What is happening? And Jesus looks around. He sees all of their troubled faces. And he begins with this. Do not let your heart be troubled. Do not let your heart be troubled. And with that phrase, he's pivoting. He's painted an accurate picture of what's actually happening. Yes, Judas is betraying him. Yes, Peter's faith is faltering. Yes, the disciples are weak. But the point of this night was not for Jesus to hammer on the disciples for their immaturity, though he could have. If you think of the tremendous strain that our Savior was under as he anticipated facing the Father's wrath for them, it would be easy for us to excuse Jesus a little righteous venting at his foolish uh, disciples. But instead, the goal of this evening's conversation is going to be encouragement, teaching about the future, establishing of their faith. It's going to be grounding their relationship with Jesus and with the Father. And so he says, hey guys, relax. Don't be troubled. And he gives us then the antidote to the troubled soul. And it's the same thing that Jesus has used for his own soul. Because this is the same word we've seen applied even to our Savior when his heart was stirred within him. He says simply this, believe in God, believe also in me. And that verb believe there can refer simply to considering something to be true and therefore worthy of one's trust. But it can also mean, and I believe it does so here, the act of entrusting oneself to an entity in complete confidence. To give yourself wholly and entirely to something else that you believe is fully capable of doing what is good and what is best. And that is what Jesus is calling on his disciples to do. They need to entrust themselves to God the Father and entrust themselves to God the Son. And that's our first lesson this morning, simply this. The alternative to trouble is trust. Surprise, it's the same thing as the point. Ha, didn't see that coming. It's a simple concept, but wow, is it hard to apply, isn't it? It's hard to apply when you're young. It's hard to apply even after you have been in Christ sometimes for decades. There are still things that come along in life that seem so soul-shaking that it's very difficult to say, because I know who my Father is, because I know who the Son is, I will not be troubled. And we live in a world that is troubled, do we not? Anxiety and distress and despair are rampant around us and quickly rising to the top of almost every list of maladies that are faced by people in the West in particular. And Jesus says, don't be troubled. And this is the antidote. Trust the Father and trust me. And in doing that, he places himself on the same level as the Father continuing as he has from the beginning of his ministry to link his words and his message and his person to the words and the message of the Father himself. Paul would give us this same exhortation in slightly different language in Philippians 4. 
I know for our family, this has at times been a lifeline verse. We have literally turned this into a multi-step process and walked through it like a formula. And I encourage you, put this one on a 3 by 5 card in your opening case of emergency uh, section of Scripture. And Paul says, be anxious for nothing. For real, Paul? Be anxious for nothing. And if it had just stayed there as the command, how discouraging and frustrating would that be? But he doesn't stop there. He says, this is how you practically apply the advice I believe that Jesus is giving us here. Here's how you practically bring your soul, which is anxious and troubled, and line it up with the simple exhortation to believe in God and believe in Jesus. He says this, be anxious for nothing, but in everything... By prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. That's our part. To say, I am troubled, I am anxious. Step one is stop and pray. Pray to who? Pray to fate? Pray to chance? Pray to world systems and programs? No. Pray to the one you trust can actually help. Pray to God. Pray to the Father. Prayer telling him what's going on and being honest. And supplication. Supplication. Asking God for help that you need. Here's a key word. With thanksgiving. When you've gotten your heart to the point where in the midst of your distress you can be thankful to the God you trust, You have already begun to climb out of your anxiety to say, remind me again of who you are and what you have done for me. Help me to praise you even before I see the answer to my request and make those requests known to God. And then guess what? God does his part. Verse 7 in Philippians 4, And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your heart's and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's supernatural. Do you notice that? That's not saying, this is the power of positive thinking for you. If you'll just tell yourself everything's fine every morning, you'll fix your brain. How many of you have noticed there are things in life that no matter how many times you mutter a mantra under the mirror at yourself in the morning, it doesn't actually help? This is saying if you will believe in God and if you will believe in Christ and if you will go to Him in trust when your soul is troubled, He will divinely and incomprehensibly guard your mind. That's the antidote to a troubled soul. It is the divine protection of a God you can trust. And what a blessing that we have such an opportunity to do so. And what an opportunity we have this week as we remember and celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus to apply this truth to our hearts. What troubles you this day? Truly, what troubles you this day? Write it down. Put it even there in your notes. That word trouble means stirring, remember? What's stirring and worrying your soul? 
And I want to encourage us this week, sit down with that list and prayerfully allow your trust in God, the Father, and your trust in God, the Son, to bring peace to your heart. What a fantastic way to celebrate Easter. What are the attributes of God you can count on to give you comfort in your situation? Do you need to remember His loving kindness, His faithfulness, His justice, His mercy, His wisdom? What are the promises of God that you can count on? Do you need to be refreshed that Jesus will never leave you nor forsake you? That every temptation comes with a way of escape? That God is the God of all comfort that he can change hearts that the future unfolds according to the counsel of his will and not man believe in God believe in Jesus and be not troubled that was true when Jesus walked physically with his disciples and Jesus wants to make sure the disciples know it is true even now that he is leaving which is what he is preparing them for. And so we see point number two this morning in your outlines is that we can trust his going. We can trust his going. Jesus begins there in verse two to say, in my father's house are many dwelling places. And as far as you know, the history of understatements goes, that probably ranks somewhere up near the top. It almost comes across like the humble brag. You know, my father... He's God, by the way. Yeah, you know, who owns the whole universe? Yeah, he's got a pretty nice house. Right, if this was somebody else speaking, we might tend to read a little bit of that snarky emphasis in there, but this this is Jesus. And his emphasis is very different. He's conjuring up for his disciples the image of a growing family home. A father would establish a home And as the generations went by, some of the sons would leave and go find their way in the world, but many of the sons would stay and continue to invest in the growing estate and work of the family, bring wives in and establish themselves there, and they would add on to the home a new dwelling place, a new room or small suite of rooms, until over time this home would grow into quite the compound of family members living together and working together on a common enterprise. And Jesus is saying, my father's house is one of those kind of houses. It's a house with lots of room for family. There's an unfortunate translation from the Greek into one of the old Latin translations that led the King James Version to use the word mansions here. And maybe, maybe many of you grew up here in my father's house or many mansions. And it gives the impression that heaven is sort of this sprawling Beverly Hills, right? With mansions everywhere. And, you know, there's, you might, you know, the upper class uh, Christians, you know, the like missionaries and stuff, they, they sort of get like the indoor pool and some of the extra amenities. And then the rest of us will get by with, you know, entry level mansions uh, in God's uh, kingdom. But that's not the image of heaven Jesus is describing. This is cool. Jesus is saying his father does not dwell alone. He's not in the castle up on the hill and we're all down in the village below looking up at him with our own little houses gathered around. 
I think sometimes we tend to think of God as a loner. God is not a loner. He is at his very core relational. Always has been for all eternity in perfect relationship with himself, within the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is giving the disciples the encouraging news that God has the kind of home that makes room for others to join in. And perhaps the disciples, as Jesus says this, they can't believe this could be true. Is Yahweh the kind of God who has room for us in his home? It's one thing to think about being allowed to live in his kingdom. That's mind-blowing enough. To even dare to think we could live in his home? And so Jesus underscores and tells them, no, I'm not joking. Look at that. He goes on to say, if it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. Jesus isn't the sort to offer vain hope. He emphasizes that his too-good-to-seem-true description of the Father's house is indeed very real. And moreover, it is one of the very reasons he is leaving them. Notice how in this teaching, Jesus is lifting his eyes up from the immediate looming specter of the cross, and he's seeing the greater purpose beyond it. His going to the cross is the prelude to his going to the Father, and the going to the Father is of great benefit to the disciples and to us. The departure of Jesus means the establishment of a place for the disciples in the Father's house. What a contrast this stands in to the promises of competing worldviews and religions today. Ben brought this up at our sermon prep time this week on Tuesday. The world is looking for utopia, but Jesus promises us a topia. One year before the Reformation began, the Englishman Thomas More wrote a now famous book called Utopia. And the title was meant to be a pun because the word utopia literally means no place. No place. But it sounds almost identical to a similar Greek word that means good place. And so Moore described this ideal place where true happiness was possible. But the assumption was, as the title suggests, that no such place actually exists. And history has been full of dreamers promising that if we just follow their ideas, perhaps just imagine it to be true, a world of perfect happiness would come about. Now you can guess which song on the radio makes me nauseous immediately. But all such dreams of utopia have just been that. A utopia. A place that doesn't and has never existed. And can you see it and hear it in the language of the world today? So many are excited at the prospect of the old institutions, the old governments, the old laws, the old nations toppling and giving way to what exactly? Some dimly defined, enthusiastically hyped, although with top-of-the-line graphics and, and uh, pictures, future 
in which we will all somehow be free and happy forever. Jesus is telling his disciples that they don't have to bring about some political revolution to usher in this place of happiness. He's telling them the place already exists. The place already exists. I'm going to prepare it for you. The topia, where your happiness will be found, is a place right now, and it's coming. In fact, our future with God in his house is so important to our comfort today that God would later grant the Apostle John, who writes the Gospel of John here, grant him another vision of this very place, of this very house in the book of Revelation. And for all the children of God, this is going to be your house too. You can follow along. I'll read an extended section because it's really cool. From Revelation 21. Revelation 21. Then I saw, John writes, a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there is no longer any sea. Now, even just that in and of itself would be kind of wild. Some 75% of the earth's surface is covered with water. That's a lot of wasted real estate. In version 2.0, when God doesn't have to drown sinners, that's going to be rectified. Verse 2, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Like, that's just crazy to think about. God has got an entire city up there somewhere, ready to go. And he's going to bring it down here when this is ready to go. And I heard a loud voice from the throne. You notice that in Revelation, you never hear the uh, still small whisper. It's always a loud voice when God's talking, saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. And listen why. And he will dwell among them. And they shall be his people. And God himself will be among them. When you guys, I know many of us are doing read through the Bible plans and we're going through the Old Testament. One of the things perhaps to try to mark out and highlight this year as you're reading through is notice how many times God uses this language. I want to be your God and I want you to be my people and I want to dwell among you. And the story of scripture is us failing over and over and over and over to be a covenantally faithful people to the God who wishes to dwell with us. And God keeps coming back and keeps coming back and keeps coming back. Well, here is where he comes back to stay. Because all of the sin is finally wiped out. And this is the place and this is the time when we can be together forever. And that's why, verse 4, we can finally hear these words, He will wipe every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. And there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Right, people need to read this, for these words are faithful and true. Pretty cool, right? But it gets even more specific. 
God could have left it there and that would already be such a wonderful hope. But God says, John, go get your tape measure. Follow me. Jump down to verse 10. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone as a stone of crystal clear jasper. It had a great and high wall with 12 gates and at the gates, 12 angels and names were written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. There were three gates on the east and three gates on the north and three gates on the south and three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones and on them were the 12 names, of the 12 apostles of the lamb. The one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod because, you know, tape measures are way too pedestrian to measure the city and its gates and its wall. The city is laid out as a square and its length is as great as the width. And he measured the city with the rod 1500 miles. Its length and width and height are equal. Now, some of those numbers are like congressional budget numbers. They're just too hard to imagine for the human brain. So let me give you a little visual. You ever wonder what a city like this would look like? If the new Jerusalem were to come down and land over the current Jerusalem, how much bigger would this cube-shaped city be? But here's a little graphic of what that would actually look like. Wait for it. That is what a 1,500-mile cubed city would look like. Take a gander. That's the Father's house. That's your house. As you look at it, listen. And he measured its wall, 72 yards according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements, finally, right? You know, we have like metric and standard and all this stuff. We've got at least one system in the future. The material of the wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundation stones of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation stone was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. I'm sorry. (laughs) But notice the specificity. He gives us these words so we can picture it. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it. And its lamp is the Lamb. Brothers and sisters, This is where you are going to spend your forever. Not floating around in some ethereal spiritual plane. In this house. This house. A new heavens, a new earth, a massive city in which there is plenty of room for everyone to dwell together with the Father. And this was the hope Jesus gave to his scared and troubled disciples on the last night of his earthly life. And it's the hope Jesus gives to us 
as well. And so our lesson here is this. Wait expectantly. Wait expectantly. Read Revelation. Don't let the fact, oh, I've heard there's weird stuff in there. It's scary. I won't read it. Why did God give it? Because he wants you to see in your mind what it looks like when Jesus wins. He wants you to see in your mind what it looks like where you're going. He wants you to almost be able to smell the sweet air of the new heavens and the new earth. To almost be able to feel what gold glass is like beneath your feet. To remind you that even though Christ is gone, you are not abandoned. You can trust his going because he's gone to prepare a place for you. And it exists. And it's coming. And that's why thirdly here, we can trust his gathering. We can trust his gathering. Look at verse 3 back in John 14. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. Jesus isn't saying if here to worry us that he might change his mind. Just the opposite. Because it's a guarantee that Jesus is leaving the disciples to go prepare a place for them in heaven. Therefore, it is just as certain that he is returning. Jesus isn't going to send for us by mail. He's not going to dispatch an angel to shuttle us off to heaven. When the time comes, the Lord himself is coming for his own to gather us. We read of this great day in 1 Thessalonians 4. Many of you know it well. 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning in verse 16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in heaven? No, in the air. Because he's coming back to gather us. And so we shall always be with the Lord. When this age in which we live comes to an end, and nobody knows that date but the Father, so if you see somebody guessing, well, you can scratch that off the calendar because that date can't be right. There will be an outpouring of the wrath of God in judgment upon the wickedness of this world. Prior to that event, however, we understand from Scripture that Jesus is coming to take us to be with him. An event that is often referred to as the rapture. And I know that there are other godly believers who have a different understanding of the exact order of events in the future. And the point of this passage is not for you to brag about your charts, as much as I'm tempted to brag about my charts. (laughs) But there is something everyone agrees on. Jesus comes back. And he comes back for us. And what a day that will be. Today on Palm Sunday, we remember Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey's colt, a mount that signified humility and peace. Jesus will ride into Jerusalem again one day, but not on a donkey. He will be on a white war horse, and he will become in glory, a glory too painful to look upon, and will melt his enemies, as in literally, read Zechariah 14 and reclaim the throne of David. And we will be with him. 
Jesus will come to gather us, and then we will come with him when he returns to conquer, because wherever Jesus goes from this day on, in that day we go. And that's why Jesus says here that where I am, there you may be also. See how relational this all is. He's not bribing them with golden palaces. He's comforting them with his presence. My Father's glorious house is a place where we can be together. And if I go to prepare that place, I'm coming back for you so that we can be together forever. What anticipation there seems to be on the part of Jesus to be reunited with his church. We were reading Revelation 21 and that vision of the new heavens and the new earth. And in Revelation 22, the last chapter in your Bible, we read this, Revelation 22, 7. And behold, I am coming quickly, says Jesus. Revelation 22, verse 12. Behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me. Revelation 22, 12. Revelation 22, 20. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. You see a pattern? Some of the last words Jesus shares with the church in all of recorded revelation thrice in the last chapter is, I'm coming, I'm coming, I'm coming. Our Savior is excited to return and complete the work he has begun. And what anticipation we ought to have to see him return. I'm reminded of the great words of that great hymn, How Great Thou Art. When Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and take me home, what joy shall fill my heart? Then I shall bow in humble adoration. And you know the rest. And there proclaim, my God, how great Thou art. This isn't the utopian dream of a Marxist idealist. This is the realized hope a great God gives to his people. And it is ours. So remember the reunion. Our lesson here, remember the reunion. There are times when these promises seem so far away. When the experience we have in our Christian life, it feels like God is distant. Remember, Jesus is in heaven. Your home is prepared. And he is saying to you, I'm coming quickly. I'm coming quickly. And cling to that truth. And share it with others. And so we close this morning with verse 4. We can trust his guiding. The antidote, the alternative to trouble is to trust. We trust Christ as he goes. We trust Christ as he gathers. And we trust Christ as he guides us on the way. Jesus simply says this, You know the way where I am going. And the disciples are thrown off by this question and It's understandable, wasn't it, Jesus himself who had just said back in verse 33 of chapter 13, little children, I'm with you a little while longer and you will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, now also I say to you where I'm going, you can't come. 
So this feels like a reversal to them. And we'll see that famous reaction of Thomas to the statement next week as we celebrate the resurrection. And I don't want to steal too much thunder from that glorious passage, but I want us to, to end with this thought. The answer to this question, you know the way I'm, where I'm going, had been given to the disciples all the way back when they first met him. Jesus had not called them to go to Jerusalem. He had not told them, follow this map. He had not given them an itinerary of destinations and timelines. No, if you wanted to go where Jesus was going, it was very simple. Follow these two words. Follow me. Follow me. When Jesus said, you know the way where I am going, the way was standing right in front of the disciples. And the way hasn't changed, and neither has the message. Follow him. Follow him. And that's what we end with this morning. If you're here, and perhaps during Easter week we have more guests, more visitors, we are so glad you're here this morning. But if you're realizing this is more than just an opportunity to, to have a religious experience, this is, this is a faith based off of historical facts. This is a truth claim. Jesus is declaring, I died, I rose, and I am coming back. I invite you, would you let go of whatever it is you follow today and follow him? Trust who he is and trust what he's done. Might you come to partake in his resurrection even this week as we celebrate it? And for those of us who know Christ, this is our response. Not to bunker and wait out all the hard times until we get to go to heaven. But every day, follow him until the day we meet him. And if we will do that, by God's grace, not only will our lives be filled with the kind of joy that comes through obedience, and the blessing that comes from living out according to God's commands, the life that he has called us to live, but by God's grace, he'll have to tack a few extra rooms onto that house of his. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, your goodness is of such a kind that we cannot find language to describe it. Indeed, it will take an eternity to experience it. And even then, we will not have hit the bottom. And I pray this morning with tremendous gratitude, we would worship your Son for all that he has done for us. And we would anticipate the return of your Son. And yes, it is exciting to think about 1,500-mile-cubed, glorious cities and a new heavens and a new earth that are finally free from all the many aspects of the curse that we have to deal with day in and day out. But may we never dim our affection for the heart of all these things, which is the opportunity for us to be your people and you to be our God and for us all to dwell together as family. May this church and may our lives be an echo, an anticipatory echo of that great day for your glory and for the glory of our King Jesus, in whose name we close. Amen.